Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 130. The father of the father of the nation. The rise of the Medici. 1402 to 1428. Before we went on our digression with Catherine of Siena, we had left the Florentines breathing a huge collective sigh of relief at the death of the Duke of Milan, Gian Galeazzo Visconti, in 1402. We also mentioned that, although they didn't know it at the time, that same year another fundamental event occurred, the election of Giovanni di Bici de' Medici as prior, meaning, of course, that they knew they had elected him as prior, but not how important the event would be. This was the first time Giovanni had appeared holding a political position, but it was not the first time he came to prominence in the public eye. Indeed, the year before, he had been selected to be part of a commission that would evaluate proposals to renew the doors of the baptistry of the city. Now, like me, I suppose that if they were to ask you whether it was more important to be an elected representative of your city, one of the most powerful financial forces in the known world, or to be on the board of a panel selecting somebody to do a pair of bronze doors, you would probably say that the political position was the most important, and in the short term, you would probably be right. But if we are looking at the longer term, perhaps thinking of tourists flocking to Florence over six centuries later, the artistic aspect is not to be overlooked. Indeed, it is in this period that a little business that we call the Renaissance really kicks off, and the Medici have a big hand in promoting it, particularly the idea that those who have a whopping load of extra cash have a sort of moral obligation to give back to their community with pretty buildings and things. Also, they made it acceptable to have private and public buildings adorned with beautiful works of art in a time when abstenting wealth in Florence was frowned upon. There were even laws in place prohibiting certain constructions, decorations, and even regulating what people should wear so they didn't look too fancy and posh. The Medici started to change all that. Also, they and many Florentine families started to bring into the picture names that, for us today, are synonymous with artistic and architectural beauty. Some of the names proposed for the baptistry doors in 1401 included Lorenzo Ghiberti and Filippo Brunelleschi, while later Giovanni de Bici would hire a young sculptor to adorn San Lorenzo with statues, a certain young sculptor by the name of Donato di Nicolò di Betto Bardi, also known as Donatello. When it came time to decorate the church of the Carmine, he called in a young painter who would die in poverty at the age of only 27, but whose work would revolutionise painting for generations to come, Tommaso di Ser Gianni di Simone, 
also known as Masaccio. It was not just buildings and statues that made up the Renaissance, and it was not just the 15th century. You and I, as history lovers, always have that unshakable caveat that people didn't just all wake up one day and say, hey, I'm feeling artistic. Let's have a general rebirth of human culture and see if it spreads beyond Tuscany and lasts through the ages, perhaps. Indeed, we have mentioned that you can find traces of the rebirth of literature, for example, in the court of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II at the beginning of the 13th century, who used Italian as a language of administration and promoted the arts. We can find traces in the writings of St. Francis of Assisi, written in the vernacular, and, of course, in Dante at the beginning of the 14th century as well, and with Petrarch, who was one of the first to rediscover an interest for the classics that would be one of the cornerstones of the coming cultural movement. In short, elements that would come together and lead to the rebirth of Western culture can be traced in many art forms, geographical areas and times. But in very few places would we find the great concentration of art forms, characters, interests and general enthusiasm that we would see in the Florence of the Medici. The founding father of the dynasty is generally considered to be Cosimo de' Medici, but he worked with a strong foundation that his father, Giovanni di Bicci, set out, although Giovanni stopped very short of absolute hereditary rule. Giovanni, who came to prominence as we are seen in 1401 at the age of 40, was not the first Medici to show up in the public records. The name Medici means doctor, so there may have been one somewhere in their history, or apothecary, or something like that. They were not originally of the city of Florence, but came from the valley of the Mugello, an area that today is well known for its racetrack, which is also part of the Formula One circuit. As in Italian, I really don't want to talk about this year's Formula One, thank you very much. An Averardo de' Medici, a merchant, appears in 1314 as a gonfaloniere of the city. In 1336, Giovanni's grandfather, Salvestro, appears as a member of a diplomatic mission to Venice. In 1343, another Giovanni de' Medici had the unfortunate fate of being known for having been put to death by Walter of Brienne, the very short-lived foreign ruler of Florence. In 1360, Giovanni di Bicci was born, and at the age of 18, in 1378, he would have seen his grandfather's cousin egging on the crowds during the Chompi Revolt. Another cousin instead, in 1393, was known instead for having helped in subduing another rebellion. In general, the Medici started to be known as antagonists of the party of the nobility, placing themselves closer to the people and the lesser arts. Giovanni's father, another Averardo, was a successful wool merchant, but it was his uncle, Vieri, who took Giovanni under his wing to teach him his trade banking. He was sent to learn in the family branch in Rome, and later, when he could afford it, he ended up taking over the business from his uncle. He was able to do this thanks also to a successful marriage choice, marrying 
Piccarda Boeri in 1386, and together they had their sons, Cosimo and Lorenzo. The main line of Cosimo would go on to govern Florence for seven generations, and then for another six under Lorenzo's line, until the extinction of the Medici in 1743, when Anna Maria Luisa de' Medici left everything the family owned to the city of Florence, making them promise to keep it all there forever. At the time of Giovanni di Bicci, the family lived in Via Larga in the city and would later move to Piazza Duomo. The marriage with Piccarda brought Giovanni a lot of cash from her dowry, which allowed him to further assert himself as a successful banker. In 1397, they moved the Roman branch to Florence and stayed close to the family business, also investing in wool. That brings us back to 1402, when he was first elected as prior as a representative of his art, his guild, that of the Cambiatori, which doesn't actually mean bankers, but money exchangers. Indeed, a lot of what they did was change different currencies. Furthermore, the exchangers were the ones you went to when you wanted to travel in safety. You could trust them to be the ones you could leave your money to in one location, say London or Champagne, for example, and then head down to Florence or Rome with a letter of exchange and pick up your money there, minus, of course, the commission costs. Another thing the exchanges did that made them more similar to modern banks was actually lend money, which sort of raised a moral problem, and that was, according to the Christian faith, you weren't allowed to lend money for profit. This is part of the reason why exchangers would invest so heavily in church building and decoration, hoping to make things a little bit better for their souls. Giovanni di Bici was quite lucky in this sense after becoming chummy with a certain clergyman, Baldassare Cossa, in 1403. Giovanni lent money to Cossa, who, in turn, introduced him to other clergymen whom he lent money to. They would all remember Giovanni when the time came. 1406 was a big year for Florence. You see, they had all this commerce and wool trade and banking running quite smoothly, yet they were still a landlocked republic with no access to a seaport, something they really envied their antique rival, the Republic of Pisa. At the height of the power of Duke Gian Galeazzo Visconti of Milan, Pisa had entered into his sphere of influence and become part of the great mosaic that surrounded Florence and threatened her very existence. Now, with Giangaleazzo's heir in a weak position, the Florentines saw their chance and boy did they decide to take it. After buying off the French who now controlled Genoa and were looking to expand south, Florence, after centuries of rivalry, managed to take Pisa in 1406, finally getting the access to the sea they so badly desired. Two years later, in 1408, Giovanni di Bici was elected prior once more, and by that same year, the family bank had branches in Florence, Venice, and Rome, with a sub-branch of Rome in Naples. 
Two years after that, wouldn't you know it, Giovanni's old buddy Baldassare Cossa became Pope John XXIII, who would end up being anti-Pope John XXIII, but he didn't know it yet. He remembered, as we said, his friend Giovanni, and by 1413, the Medici became the main bankers of the papacy, that coming after another stint for Giovanni as prior in 1411. The whole bankers of the papacy business didn't really last that long. You clever listener will remember that the Great Western Schism was solved in 1417 when John XXIII and the other two rival popes were all deposed and Martin V was elected. Therefore, that particular part of their business was over for the Medici. But the whole idea of getting in on the pope business would come up again later on down the line, perhaps in a more direct way, let's say. For now, they had made plenty of money anyway, and the fact that in the meantime the Spina and Alberti banks had gone under meant that there was a little less competition. In any case, Giovanni did not forget his mate John the Pope and paid a hefty sum to have him freed and then put him up with a place to stay. While Banker and ex-Pope were no doubt happily hanging around, or less happily for the ex-Pope, I suppose, Florence was posed with an architectural dilemma. The cathedral of the city was almost completed, but it needed a dome, and no one really knew how to do it. A tender was called, and along came Filippo Brunelleschi, who said that he would do it, but he would not tell anyone how he was going to do it, preferring to keep his idea a secret. This rather annoyed the Florentine authorities, but since there didn't seem to be anyone else willing or capable of doing it, Brunelleschi got the job. To this day, you can go and admire his work, a symbol of the city of Florence, and at the time, one of the great wonders of the world with its double-domed structure. Speaking of buildings, 1419 saw Giovanni invest in the building of the Spedale degli Innocenti, an orphanage also to help the children, who in part had lost their parents in the new wave of plague that had hit two years earlier, another opportunity in which Giovanni put a lot of money into helping those hit by the new epidemic. The rising star of the Medici and their currying favour with the lower classes really irked the nobles. So it was around this time that a political battle took place. Two men of the ancient families, Rinaldo degli Albizzi and Nicola da Uzzaro, tried to pass a bill limiting the representation of the lower classes and at the same time attempting to lift the ban on nobles participating in government. Although it was dressed up nicely, that was the gist of it, and Giovanni di Bici saw it for what it was and managed to block the bill from going through. This was yet another reason for the Albizzi to be annoyed with the Medici and their rising star was eclipsing that of the Albizzi themselves, who had dominated Florentine politics since the end of the Ciompi Revolt in 1378. 
Therefore, the Albizzi and the other members of the party of the nobles were particularly enraged when in 1421 Giovanni de' Medici was elected gonfaloniere for the first time. A bit like going from a council member to mayor if you want to try and find a possible modern equivalent, although it wouldn't really be 100% correct. The nobles saw this as a very dangerous situation. That a man so rich and so popular should cover such an important position. It really seemed like a threat to the precious freedom of the Florentines. Soon after that, Florence and Milan picked up an old hobby of theirs, fighting each other, and we'll talk more about that when we swing back around to Milan. Suffice it to say for now that for Florence, it was one of those lose-every-battle-but-win-the-war situation. Indeed, they lost to Milan six times in four years before getting Venice in on the action and finally winning out. In part due to this conflict, the finances of the Republic took a big hit and a new influx of cash was needed. That is when Giovanni introduced perhaps his most well-known fiscal innovation, the Catasto. This was a system of direct taxation based on property ownership that the rich could not so easily get out of paying. It was a more fairly distributed system that the wealthy obviously hated but the poorer classes loved. It also made the Medici look particularly good and selfless as they too had to cough up quite a bit more in taxes. To this day in Italy, if you want to know what property is registered to whom and how much it is worth for fiscal purposes, you look it up in the land registry, the Catasto. That was the last great contribution of Giovanni di Bici de' Medici, for on the 20th of February, 1429, he died just shy of 70. Speaking of shy, that had been very much one of his character traits. Shy, soft-spoken and unassuming. And, if the paintings are a good likeness, far from being attractive, yet still charismatic and able to make lasting and important friendships. He was generous with his donations to the poor and his patronage to young and upcoming artists and scholars. He was a shrewd banker and an able politician, never showing himself to be overly ambitious. In hindsight, Niccolò Machiavelli would say of him, he asked for no honours, but received them all. Grazie, grazie mille. Thank you very, very much for listening. And thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, starting with the second part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Kevin, Mark P, Marxist, Leninist, Sicilian, Amela, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels H, Paradise, Patrizia K, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean M, Shelby, Stephen, Tap, Dance, Down Under, and TO5. And of course, we mustn't forget the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Renat M, David C, Oak, and of course, Sen.
If you feel so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. Thank you to those who have been in touch over the holidays. You can also go to our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, where you can click through to our support page and become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content or just support the show. Thank you very much if you decide to do so. Thanks again very much to you for listening. Grazie mille. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.